Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Uh, well, the loons mean that it's time for some Dark Poutine. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm Mike Brown. And across the table from me is Matthew Stockton. Hello. How are you, Matthew Stockton? It's a very Octobery day, finally. Finally. I yeah. kind of like October. I don't I don't know what it is about this particular month. I think well, Halloween is in it, but Yeah, but it hasn't been Octobery. It's been sort of Augusty. Augusty. <laughs> yes, very much so. And we have a bit of an announcement. This week, we're participating in a multi-true crime podcast Halloween special called A Nightmare Before Halloween. There are 32 shows taking part. Many are friends of Dark Poutine, including Crime Lines, The Trail Went Cold, Once Upon a Crime, Criminology, True Crime Island, Asian Madness, Gone Cold, and many more. Even Nancy Grace is involved. The first part has been released in our Patreon feed. At the same at the same time this show will be at the same time this show came became available. So you can listen to part one now. Part two will be released in the same place at midnight tonight. That's midnight Tuesday, October twenty-fifth, twenty twenty-two. So you don't have to be a patron to listen, as the episodes will be in our public feed. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash darkpoutine and listen away. It's great stuff. A big thanks to Shane Waters of the Foul Play Crime Series podcast for putting this stellar content together. It's full of people we know. That's going to be our Halloween special for this. That's great. Yeah, it's kind of cool. So on with the show. On with this show. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. On March 3, 2005, a contingent of RCMP constables attended the property of James Michael Roscoe, 46, 
and Rochefort Bridge near Marathorpe, Alberta. The members were there to serve a search warrant for stolen property and a marijuana growing operation on the farm, discovered the day before. Roscoe, knowing the police would be arriving soon, armed himself with the help of a couple of friends, Sean Hennessy and Dennis Cheeseman, and then he lay in wait for the RCMP. When four of the officers, Anthony Gordon, Leonide Leo Johnson, Brock Mirol, and Peter Sheeman, walked into a Quonset hut on the farm, Roscoe, hidden inside the building, opened fire on the four members, killing them, and then himself, before the other RCMP officers on site could come to their aid. This episode covers the life of the murderer and leads up to the slaying of the four RCMP members. Next week, in part two, you'll hear about the crime and its aftermath. You are listening to Dark Poutine, episode 241, Fallen Four, The Mayorthorpe Tragedy, part one, Offender History. Thanks to his long and violent past and a history of run-ins with the police, a longtime resident in the Mayorthorpe, Alberta area, James Michael Roscoe, had a bad reputation. People in town knew not to cross him. He was a bully. Cops were wary of him. He was slippery, too. Roscoe had many arrests and prosecutions, however, only a handful ended in convictions. Included in that small number were the ongoing sexual assaults of a boy. Many court cases against him ended in either acquittal or a stay of proceedings. According to CBC News, quote, In total, Roscoe was charged with 36 crimes, including driving and trespassing offenses, and convicted of 12 of them. At the time of his death, he was facing two charges of mischief to property, end quote. In the years leading up to the murders, Roscoe was known to have hated cops and blamed all his troubles on the RCMP, claiming they were out to get him. He was volatile, known for his vicious temper, waving guns around, and sicking his dogs on trespassers on his property. Many, including Roscoe's father, said later that they knew it was just a matter of time before James Roscoe killed someone and it wouldn't be a surprise if they heard that person he'd killed was a cop. It's amazing how uh, when you are committing a lot of crime, you think the police are always out to get you. Yeah, isn't that funny? <laughs> they are out to get you because you're committing a lot of crime. It's insanity. Yeah, it's funny how that works. <laughs> the police are out to get me. You've just you've committed multiple crimes. Yeah, yeah, there's, there is no, uh, <laughs> there's no question they're out to get you, because they are, yes. Because they're doing their job. Mm -hmm. Growing up, James Roscoe's family life was unstable. His mother left the family home when James was 12, leaving his father Bill to raise their eight children on his own. James' issues with booze and drugs started in his teens. His dad confronted 14-year-old James having found weed in the youngster's room. He was running with a rough crowd who skipped school and got into all kinds of teenage trouble. Roscoe made money on the side by making moonshine before moving on to dealing other substances. When Roscoe was just about 17, on February 18, 1976, he was arrested and charged with two counts of break, enter, and theft. He was convicted on one count of break, enter, and theft and on one count of possession of stolen property. Roscoe was fined $150 on each charge and received a one-year probation order. The consequences were typical for a first offense. That same year, in November, James was charged with theft under $200. He was again convicted and this time fined $250. 
It isn't clear whether there were any consequences that came as part of a clear breach in his probation. More charges came two years later. He was again charged with one count of possession of stolen property and a further count of break, enter, and theft. Roscoe's criminal sophistication was developing. On April 28, 1977, Roscoe had driven an accomplice who'd then broke into a gun store in Mayerthorpe. Roscoe got $40 of the proceeds of the sale of the items stolen for being the wheelman. James pled guilty to possession of stolen property and was acquitted on the break-and-enter charge as he hadn't entered the business. James was given a suspended sentence and a probation order of another 18 months. Roscoe didn't stick to theft. He was charged and convicted of one count of making harassing phone calls in April of 1979. James earned his first jail time and was sentenced to 30 days behind bars on that charge. As he was on probation at the time, he received 15 days jail time to be served consecutively with the harassment sentence. He was not above lying to the court. Roscoe appeared in Mayerthorpe Provincial Court on May 6, 1980 at a friend's scheduled impaired driving charge trial. He told the court that his friend was out of town and asked the trial to be adjourned. This friend was alleged to be in town on the day of the trial. He's alleged to have acted as an agent for his friend who gave him no such instructions. According to the Crown Counsel case report, Roscoe was acquitted at trial because the Crown couldn't establish whether he had the intent to obstruct justice. So, let's get this straight. He's in court for some matter and says, well, his friend is out of town, so that's why he hasn't shown up. But the friend is in town, but they can't prove whether or not he's lying for the friend. Yeah, and we're going to see a lot of this sort of behavior, aren't we? Yes. Uh, but So, Mike, you've done a lot of episodes. Yeah. So this amount of criminal, like we've gone through a lot of criminality at a young age here. Yeah. Right? And it doesn't bode well for the adult Roscoe. No. Um, did you grow up with any real hellions? Yes, I was. Who, who, who were, but ones that are all like the really bad ones yeah. always getting arrested. And did they make it out or did they become adult criminals as well? Well, a few of the guys who I hung around with ended up doing some really bad stuff, destroying the golf course at one point. Right. Uh, and they went to jail for two years less a day. And I think they were like 18 or 19 at the time. I'm not going to say any names. But they were always kind of the hellion guys around. Out of the three of them who went to jail for that, I think all of them have kind of stayed away from crime after that. Okay. So even though they were real hellions before, yeah. there wasn't much more after that. So it, it, it it's like they did their bit and it straightened them out kind there's, of thing. There's a difference between stupid youth stuff. Yeah. And criminality uh, that's just almost in the bone. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah, so th those guys aren't terrible people. One of them went on to be sort of one of the grandfathers of metal in okay. Halifax. So, okay. yeah, it's kind of an interesting... M music saved his life. <laughs> yeah, kind of it did. You know, <laughs> you know? He, it was a place for him to channel his rage. Absolutely. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Metal. Obviously, there are exceptions, and this guy, James Roscoe, seems to be one of them. There's something different about him, and the way he was doing things very early on that just, you know, like you said, doesn't bode well for his future. No. And it carries on. As an adult... James Roscoe worked in the oil patch as a driller on oil well rigs. It was a lucrative gig, and he eventually bought some land and tried raising cattle. 
But although he'd grown up physically, James Roscoe's criminal pursuits continued and seemed to be escalating. On December 5, 1990, after a trial, Roscoe was convicted of one count of uttering threats to cause death or serious bodily harm and fined $200. On March 3, 1993, Roscoe pled guilty to two traffic violation tickets and to a violation ticket for failing to wear a seatbelt on October 18, 1992. He was fined $25 for each. Now that sounds pretty straightforward. However, Roscoe's interactions with police during the traffic stop were not that of a compliant person. He was charged with causing a disturbance by use of obscene language after swearing at the officers, claiming he was going home to tend to a pregnant cow where birth of the calf was imminent. When the Crown provided no evidence on the cause disturbance charge, Roscoe was acquitted. After an incident on September 28, 1993, Roscoe was charged with a single count of assault after allegedly assaulting a friend who court documents referred to by only the first name, Arthur. Roscoe had pulled up beside a friend's car as he was allegedly upset with Arthur, who was sitting in the rear passenger seat. Arthur, apparently, had been spreading rumors around town about Roscoe's homosexuality. Witnesses, including a man named Duncan and Arthur, told police that Roscoe walked up to the passenger side of this car without warning, hit Arthur hard in the face with either a punch or a slap. Due to confusion with witnesses, subpoena dates, and Arthur not attending court, the Crown had no choice but to stay the charges against Roscoe. Also related to the incident with Arthur, Roscoe had been charged with one count of impersonating a peace officer. Someone had called Roscoe to have words with him about allegedly hitting Arthur. When the person hung up without giving their name, Roscoe called the phone company, claiming to be an RCMP officer, to get a trace on the call. Again, the witness who was set to identify Roscoe as the caller to the phone company did not show up for court. James was subsequently acquitted. A person named in court documents as Bradley came forward to the RCMP with a complaint that from the end of May into the beginning of December 1993, he'd been witness to a number of crimes allegedly committed by Roscoe. From the report on James Michael Roscoe's prosecution history as prepared by Gordon K. Wong, QC, on September 23, 2005, quote, Bradley considered himself a close friend to Roscoe in May of 1993. He became acquainted with Roscoe by first working at Roscoe's farm. Bradley told police that between May 24, 1993 and May 29, 1993, he accompanied Roscoe on a trip to the United States. They were denied entry at the border crossing because of Roscoe's criminal record. Roscoe crossed the border illegally and traveled to Utah where he purchased a Beretta 9mm handgun. They returned to Canada by the same route. During the trip back near Drayton Valley, Roscoe repeatedly asked to see Bradley's penis. When he refused, Roscoe pulled out the 9mm handgun, loaded and cocked the gun, and pointed it at Bradley's head. This continued for some time until Roscoe was pulled over for speeding. At that time, he hid the handgun from the view of the police officer. Bradley said nothing to the police about what had just happened. Bradley reported that Roscoe again pointed a firearm at him in early July 1993. Bradley testified at the preliminary inquiry that Roscoe offered explanations for his conduct in May that resulted in Bradley seeing Roscoe again. 
On July 12, 1993, Roscoe went to Bradley's home and, without warning, pulled out the same handgun. Roscoe threw Bradley onto a bed, held him down, and pointed the gun at his head. Roscoe allegedly said that he, quote, had a job to do, which was interpreted by Bradley to mean that Roscoe was going to kill him. A friend of Bradley arrived at the home, and Roscoe was interrupted in whatever he was planning. When this friend left the home, the two wrestled, which resulted in Bradley getting a knife and stabbing Roscoe in the jaw. Bradley took Roscoe to the hospital. This is not reported at the time to police or to his friend that had attended the home. Again, according to Bradley, Roscoe explained away his conduct to his satisfaction. In early October 1993, Bradley reported that Roscoe offered him $10,000 to kill a man named Conrad. This happened while Bradley was helping Roscoe put a replacement bumper on Roscoe's truck. Roscoe told Bradley that Conrad was the main cause of Roscoe's problems in life. All Bradley could say was that there was a hostility between Roscoe and Conrad. This offer was brought up two further times. In these conversations, Bradley indicated that Roscoe suggested using a rifle owned by Roscoe and that Roscoe could be Bradley's alibi. Bradley refused these offers. After these talks, Bradley testified that he saw little of Roscoe during the month of November. On December 1, 1993, there was what appeared to be a chance meeting between the two in White Court. Roscoe persisted in wanting to speak to Bradley, who did not want this. After lengthy persuasion, Bradley agreed to visit Roscoe's farm to inspect a vehicle, so long as Bradley's friend followed in another vehicle. Roscoe drove Bradley to his farm and on the way managed to lose the friend who was following. At the farm, Roscoe drove to a field purportedly to check on his cattle. He returned with a shotgun and produced a set of handcuffs that Bradley was told to put on. Bradley complied only because Roscoe loaded and worked the action on the shotgun in front of Bradley. Roscoe was angry over Bradley avoiding him over the past month. He questioned Bradley as to what he was telling people or the police about Roscoe and their relationship. Roscoe hit Bradley when he denied saying anything about their relationship. According to Bradley, Roscoe released him from the handcuffs after a few hours so they could have a, quote, fair fight. After the fight, the two went to Roscoe's house, where Roscoe said he still did not trust Bradley and, quote, needed something to keep him from talking. Roscoe decided to take pictures of a sexual nature of the two of them that Roscoe would have to hold over Bradley to prevent him from talking. Some of these pictures were of Bradley alone. Others were of the two together, where a camera timer was used. This night ended with Bradley performing oral sex on Roscoe. Bradley testified that he agreed to the photographs and the oral sex, end quote. So... You started that section saying the, the RCMP were treating him as a, quote, friend. Yeah. Who'd been, quote, a witness to a number of crimes. Correct. But this is, a, this is an abusive relationship. Yes, it is. He wasn't a witness. Mm -hmm. So, like, okay, let me do this. Let's pretend Bradley's name was Susan. Mm-hmm. And he was a she. Right. And listen to how, how, how this, for some people, how it reframes this, right? Sure. Roscoe was angry over Susan avoiding him over the past month. He questioned Susan as to what she was telling people or the police about Roscoe and their relationship. Roscoe hit Susan when she denied saying anything about the relationship. 
Roscoe decided to take pictures of the sexual nature of the two of them that Roscoe would have to hold over Susan to prevent her from talking. Some of these pictures were of Susan alone, others were of the two together where the camera timer was used. This night ended with Susan performing oral sex on Roscoe. Susan testified that she agreed to the photographs and the oral sex. So just when I was reading this in advance a little bit sure. of the show, I, I was okay. This like the way it's set up. I was like, okay, this friend saw him do some stuff. And I'm reading it. I'm like, no, this is an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. I think the way the RCMP treated it, it's, it's because it's between two men. They didn't consider it a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Is that what you're driving at? Yeah. 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 And, and I agree. That's the way it was treated. If you do replace the gender of the person. It, it just reads it, extraordinarily differently. Extraordinarily, yeah. yeah. Based on Bradley's complaint and subsequent investigation, James Roscoe was charged with seven criminal counts. Two counts of pointing a firearm at Bradley, one count of counseling Bradley to commit murder, unlawful confinement of Bradley, possession of a weapon for purpose dangerous to the public peace, assaulting Bradley with a weapon, and breach of a condition of recognizance to have no contact with this person, Conrad. Gordon K. Wong's report continued, quote, Bradley testified at a preliminary inquiry that was conducted on June 27 to 29, 1994. The transcript is the only material available for review. At the end of the preliminary inquiry, Roscoe was discharged on the counseling to commit murder charge, the judge found insufficient evidence to characterize what was said between the two as counseling. Roscoe was also discharged on the breach of recognizance charge at the invitation of the Crown. The reason is unclear as the Crown file is not available and very little was said at the preliminary inquiry. Either Conrad was not available as a witness or the charge was incorrectly worded. There is no information available to indicate what the facts of the alleged breach of recognizance were. Roscoe was ordered to stand trial on the two pointing a firearm charges, the December 1, 1993 offenses involving Bradley, and an additional count of attempt to obstruct justice that occurred on December 2, 1993. The attempt to obstruct justice had to do with Roscoe contacting a cousin to have him conceal the shotgun and film of what he'd done to Bradley after his arrest. Gordon K. Wong's report says further, quote, the trial on these matters commenced on June 3, 1996, in Queen's Bench before a judge and jury. On June 4, 1996, the Crown sought a mistrial, or in the alternative, an adjournment, as Bradley did not attend court as anticipated. The circumstances surrounding Bradley's non-attendance at trial are described below. In the week before trial, Crown was advised that Bradley had gone to British Columbia and was not coming back for the trial. The Crown made an application in Queen's Bench to get a witness warrant, and his whereabouts for the week before the trial was known. Bradley was arrested and transported to Edmonton Remand Center the weekend before the trial commenced. The Crown prosecutor's recollection is that he met with Bradley at the Remand Center before court commenced on June 3, 1996. Bradley convinced the Crown that the information police provided was a misunderstanding and that he was prepared to testify. As a result, the Crown agreed to have the trial judge release Bradley. He advised Bradley who to contact in order to secure a hotel for the night. The trial commenced with the other witnesses on June 3rd with Bradley scheduled to testify the next day. Bradley did not attend and had not phoned to get overnight accommodations. 
The trial judge refused the Crown's request for a mistrial and adjournment on June 4, 1996. The trial judge cited Bradley's failure to attend court for his own charges and the lack of certainty that Bradley could be located in a timely fashion to allow the trial to continue. The Crown had no choice but to call no further evidence resulting in the trial judge directing an acquittal on all counts. The Crown initiated an appeal from the, from the trial judge's decision not to grant a mistrial or adjournment. Ultimately, that appeal was abandoned on September 4, 1996, as a service of the notice of appeal was not completed within the 30-day time period. So the whole matter was dropped. As well, by late August 1996, Bradley was still nowhere to be found, with warrants outstanding in B.C. and Alberta, end quote. Had Roscoe been convicted on these counts, he'd have been looking at some serious prison time. However, once again, James Roscoe had slithered out of trouble. More after a quick break. And we are back. Matthew, what are your thoughts so far? on uh so this guy Bra bradley was in fear and fleeing sure right? yeah and and i and i think going back to our early conversation if he had been treated like a victim that he was a, a, of a violent relationship they probably would have got a lot further with him testifying sure um, because he probably had no support that way at all mm -hmm. and a in a lot of situations like this people flee they're fleeing a partner yeah, right. they're scared. They're, yeah, they're scared, and so I think that was probably mishandled. And maybe at the time he they he didn't even perhaps he didn't want them to see it like a relationship as well. There could sure. have been a little bit of shame there or something. Yeah. So far, we've established that this Roscoe person is a total cretin. Yeah, uh, and I think uh, there is still a lot more that he's going to be getting into. Oh, sure. Yep. Yeah. And we're about to hear a lot more. The timeline jumps around a bit because Roscoe was committing crimes while he was awaiting trial on other things. So if the dates seem screwy, that's why. Roscoe's next conviction, coming in 1994, was for the relatively innocuous offense of speeding. But it was Roscoe's reaction or overreaction to the ticket that makes it relevant to the story. Over two years, from March 1994 until October of 1996, Roscoe tied up court resources fighting the speeding ticket over several appearances. He was convicted, appealed, and convicted a second time. Roscoe hated cops and the system so much he'd do anything he could to rock the boat. Also in March of 1994, Roscoe was facing two counts of obstructing justice and a breach of a condition of recognizance. James Roscoe was not supposed to have any contact with Arthur, the man he'd allegedly assaulted in the car, or with one of the witnesses, Duncan. Both Duncan and Arthur had gone with friends to party at Roscoe's place while the court proceedings were pending and the trio were to have no contact. Roscoe hadn't asked them to leave, even knowing they shouldn't be there. So why would... Arthur and Duncan even want to hang out with him at this point. So I don't understand that part. He's been a total dick to these guys. He's assaulted one of them. Mm -hmm. Why are they hanging out with him? He's no friend. This is the this is the nature of a very small town. There is nowhere else. If you want to party with your buddies, you're going to the party at the place where the guy lives who you're not friendly with. 
it's just kind of the way it goes. Well, thank God I'm metropolitan. <laughs> right. But, <laughs> but yeah, I remember this kind of stuff from back home many, many times. There, it, it, It's not like, um, I know when we were talking before, you said, well, if that happened to me in Vancouver, I would just walk away and never see the person again. Yep. You don't really have that option if you live in a really, really tiny town. You just don't. You were, you're going to see that person. They're going to be in your face. You have to deal with them. I lived in a small town, but I guess I was close enough to London, which is sure. big enough that you could just, no, I'm going to hang out with Get other lost, yeah. yeah. But yeah, Bridgewater and area is not like that. <laughs> yeah. RCMP were also aware that Roscoe had allegedly tried to manipulate Arthur and Duncan to have the charges against him dropped. From the report on James Michael Roscoe's prosecution history, quote, The attempt to obstruct justice charges related to each of these individuals. The charge involving Arthur alleged that Roscoe offered to pay Arthur for his broken glasses so that Arthur would seek to have the assault charge withdrawn. The charge involving Duncan alleged that Roscoe told Duncan not to speak to the police about being in contact with him and offered him a bribe so that Duncan would retract statements he had made to police about Roscoe committing an offense. A preliminary inquiry was held on the 22nd of September, 1994. Roscoe was ordered to stand trial on the breach of recognizance charge, but discharged on the two attempt to obstruct justice counts. The judge at the preliminary inquiry indicated that the evidence was insufficient on those two charges to warrant an order to stand trial. In reviewing the transcript, Arthur was ambiguous as to why Roscoe paid him $200 in that it was either to facilitate a withdrawal of the assault charge or because Roscoe was simply acknowledging his liability for breaking the glasses. There was no evidence given of a bribe to Duncan, and all that was said to Duncan was that he shouldn't tell anyone about being on Roscoe's property. The trial of the breach of recognizance was scheduled for June 26, 1995. The transcript reveals that only two witnesses out of the six attended. Duncan and a corroborating witness attended court. Two important witnesses, including Arthur, had been served but did not attend. The trial judge did not grant an adjournment request stating as part of his reasons that the nature of the breach was not serious. This was a case where Arthur and Duncan voluntarily attended at Roscoe's premises and the Crown's case was based on Roscoe not ordering them off his property. There were no threats or intimidation of the two alleged during the contact. The Crown elected not to call evidence as the seriousness of the allegations without the missing witnesses was greatly diminished. End quote. So, yet again, another example of things going in Roscoe's favor, allowing him to avoid convictions and more jail time. However, in the meantime, while things were being worked out in regard to Arthur and Duncan, another, even more serious matter was before the courts. A boy named Edward had come forward to Mayor Thorpe RCMP in March of 1994. Edward said that starting in January 1983, just before he turned 11, James Michael Roscoe, then 24, had sexually assaulted him for the first time. Edward said that over the next six years until December of 1989, Roscoe had continued to sexually assault him over multiple occasions. Roscoe was charged with two counts arising from this, sexual assault and sexual touching of a young person while being in a position of trust. It's not uncommon, as with Edward, for child sex abuse victims to remain quiet and not to report an incident until years after the assaults have ended. This occurs for a variety of reasons. Chief among them 
are self-blame for the assaults, shame, and fear of reprisal for facing their attackers. Many never speak up, so child sexual abuse is very much underreported. In fact, only about 38% of child victims disclose the fact that they have been sexually abused. There are also privacy issues surrounding cases of child sexual abuse. For instance, in Canada, media reports must not contain the name of the victim, therefore adding a layer of complexity to reporting that leaves the public in the dark about these crimes, thus creating a false belief that sexual child abuse is rare. The organization Darkness to Light, found online at d2l.org, is an organization that empowers adults to prevent, recognize, and react responsibly to child sexual abuse through awareness, education, and stigma reduction. Even though their statistics are from U.S. data, our two countries tend closely mirror each other in these stats. They claim that about 1 in 10 children will be sexually abused before their 18th birthday. About 1 in 7 girls and 1 in 25 boys will be sexually abused before they turn 18. Identified incidents of child sex abuse are declining, although there is no clear indication of a cause. The number of identified incidents of child sexual abuse decreased at least 47% from 1993 to 2005-2006. About 90% of children who are victims of sexual abuse know their abuser. Only 10% of sexually abused children are abused by a stranger. Edward's abuse had started with Roscoe having Edward intimately touch him while he in turn touched Edward. After the first time, right away the assaults began to happen regularly. Edward said as frequently as once a week. Eventually, Roscoe progressed to performing fellatio on the youngster and attempted to rape him anally, but could not as Edward successfully fought off Roscoe. Awaiting his trial for the sexual assault on Edward, Roscoe was released on conditions to abide by a curfew, keep the peace, and be of good behavior, and not have any contact with Edward. Roscoe could not leave well enough alone. In what was most likely an effort to intimidate Edward and deter him from testifying against him, Roscoe confronted and allegedly assaulted Edward. It was on December 31, 1994. Edward was at a local bar to ring in the new year. Roscoe showed up. It was alleged that Roscoe rarely went out to the local bars. However, he was there. Edward told police that Roscoe and one of his buddies assaulted Edward and that during the assault, Roscoe used pepper spray on him. Police were called and the pepper spray in the air inside the establishment forced people to leave the bar to avoid its effects. In addition to the already pending sexual assault charges for his behavior with Edward, now Roscoe was facing another raft of charges. Assault, and possession of a prohibited weapon, possession of a weapon for a purpose dangerous to the public peace, causing a disturbance, and of course, breach of recognizance for contacting Edward. At his preliminary trial on those charges, it was determined that the majority of charges were excessive, as they were essentially for the same thing. It was determined that Roscoe would only be tried on assault and possession of a prohibited weapon in this round. Again, struggling to get witnesses to show up to court was an issue, and these charges were stayed. Roscoe's sexual assault trial was held beginning on September 28, 1995. Roscoe was convicted of the sexual assault on Edward. Roscoe was also found guilty of the sexual touching, but the charge was conditionally stayed by the trial judge because of the legal principle preventing multiple convictions arising out of one set of facts. Roscoe was sentenced to a five-year jail term. Roscoe appealed his conviction successfully in 1997 and a new trial was ordered. From the report on James Michael Roscoe's prosecution history, quote, 
The mistrial application had to do with the victim and one other crown witness repeatedly adding gratuitous comments in their answers during testimony, straying into areas the trial judge had already ruled to be inadmissible. The Court of Appeal was of the view that the trial judge, if correct in dismissing the mistrial motion, did not cure the prejudice the testimony produced in his charge to the jury, end quote. So, once again, Roscoe was retried. However, he was also convicted again. But his sentence was less. He was sentenced to two and one-half years in prison for the sexual assault, and the conditional stay was entered on the sexual touching charge for the same reasons as mentioned above. Again, from the report on James Michael Roscoe's prosecution history. Quote, Why the difference in sentencing between the two trials? In reviewing the sentencing transcript for the second trial, the Crown sought a five- to six-year sentence. The court found circumstances existed in the reporting of the offense and in the victim's conduct towards Roscoe after the sexual acts had stopped to conclude that the victim had not suffered long-term harm. The sentencing judge in the first trial made no such findings, nor did the defense argue it. So it was new evidence. No long-term harm. Let that sink in. So he raped this kid when the kid was 11, essentially. Right. And, And they're probably saying, well... Oh, so he was friendly with Roscoe, so there was no real long-term harm to him. There totally was. That's just bullshit. Yeah, I mean, you can't... I'm sorry, but... The guy that beat the crap out of me, Mm -hmm. he was found guilty of Mm -hmm. assault causing bodily harm. During the court proceeding, uh, at the very end, I went and sat with his mom. Right. Because I have no beef with his mom. Right. But the court probably saw that, well, oh, no, you know, these two were friends... Mm. that kind of thing. And so he got probation rather than jail at that time. So it was me who made the mistake by going and sitting with his mom and being kind to her because I liked her. Well, but she didn't do it to you. Right. Right. But she was... And this is, you know, this the kid, he was 11. Right? Yeah. That's when it started. And I'm sorry, but, you know, getting however short term he got is, is way too short for doing that to a kid. Well, it, I was 11 when that stuff happened to me. Yeah. And it wasn't even near the degree of what this child went through. And and they don't understand what's in that kid's head. No. Right? Like what they have to understand is psychologically, even if it doesn't look like it or not, that kid's going to be hurt. Totally. The good thing is this kid stood up to him, right? Mm-hmm. So this kid eventually went to the police and said it happened. And so many of the adults in this story never showed up for trial. Yeah. But I think... The bar scene with this kid is probably what Roscoe did all along. I think he was essentially witness tampering all the time. People weren't just not showing up. Mm-hmm. I th- I think I'm assuming. Yeah, I know what you're assuming. You're yeah. assuming that he he was bullied uh, people and just people. not going to court. But I think he had a reputation that preceded him as well. So the perception was you'll get in trouble with him if you go. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. He's And he's already gotten off a bunch of times. So, yeah. so they're like, hey, well, if I went, I'll just raise his ire and he always gets off anyway. Right. right. So, yeah, I think it was just people honestly being sane. But at the same time, there were all these opportunities. To stop him. Back on the streets, Roscoe returned to his law-breaking ways. In 1999, he was charged under the Federal Employment Insurance Act. It was alleged that James Roscoe had applied for a second social insurance number under another name. The charge was laid on August 18, 1999. Trial was held on May 26, 2000. Roscoe was acquitted on the basis that the Crown did not prove that he'd been the applicant on the second request for a social insurance number. 
The case for the Crown was based entirely on finding Roscoe's fingerprint on the application form, but there was nothing else. In 2001, Roscoe was charged with five offenses in response to another 1999 incident in which he shot and wounded one man and missed a second. There are different stories of why they were at his farm, either for a joyride or to warn Roscoe's to stay away from their friend. Those charges were dismissed in 2003. His last criminal charge was in August of 2004 for mischief against property. Spike belts on his property had ruined the tires on vehicles of two provincial election enumerators. James Roscoe didn't do anything by the book. This included not paying the bills. On March 2, 2005, two civil enforcement bailiffs went to James Roscoe's Mayorthorpe farm. On March 2, 2005, two civil enforcement bailiffs went to James Roscoe's Mayorthorpe farm. They were there to repossess a white 2005 Ford 350 truck. Roscoe had failed to make his payments for some months and still owed $47,609 on the truck. Bailiff Robert Perry, a former police officer, had heard about Roscoe's nasty reputation. He was aware of the elections numerators driving over Roscoe's homemade spike belt. Thinking this might be a tough repo, Perry asked a second bailiff, Mr. Mark Natu, to go with him. The bailiffs arrived at Roscoe's place, a 10 or 15 minute drive from Mayorthorpe at 3 in the afternoon. They saw who they assumed to be Roscoe on the property as they pulled up to the steel gate across the driveway. As soon as they got out of their vehicle, Roscoe's two nasty Rottweilers raced toward the bailiffs. Roscoe had released them without a word to his visitors. The men quickly got back into their vehicle and Perry called the Mayorthorpe RCMP and let them know what was happening. According to the report on the Minister of Justice and Attorney General's public fatality inquiry, quote, When he called the RCMP, he was advised by an unknown respondent at the Mayorthorpe detachment, quote, Not to go on the property. You're at Jimmy Roscoe's. Stay off until we get there. End quote. The report continues. Perry and Natu continued to observe Roscoe moving about the property, now driving a white Ford truck they believed might be the subject of their warrant. Finally, Roscoe drove out of his fenced compound, shut the gate behind him, thrust his middle finger in the air, and yelled an obscenity. He got back into the truck and drove a short distance toward the bailiffs. He then suddenly accelerated, turned left, and proceeded north, still on his property and parallel to Range Road 75. When he reached the northeast corner of the fenced compound, he turned sharply left to the west and disappeared over a small hill. That was the last that was seen of him or the truck. Roscoe had been gone from the scene for only a few minutes before the RCMP arrived. Corporal James Martin and Constable Peter Sheeman arrived in one police vehicle, and Constable Julie Littell arrived in a second cruiser shortly thereafter. They discussed the circumstances with the bailiffs, and Corporal Martin and Constable Sheeman left the area to conduct a search for Roscoe. Two witnesses had seen a white truck exit rapidly from the field west of Roscoe's property onto Range Road 80 and proceed north. They did not see who the driver was, and Martin and Sheeman were unable to locate the vehicle. In the meantime, another officer, Corporal Jeff Whipple, had been in radio contact and met with Martin. Whipple agreed to continue a search further to the north and west of the property along Range Road 80. End quote. As the bailiffs were legally allowed on the property, and they were unsure that the truck Roscoe had been driving was the one they were after, they forced the gate open. Corporal Martin, Constable Sheeman and Constable Ital cautiously walked onto the property with the bailiffs to search for the truck. 
The officers used pepper spray to fend off the dogs that were then successfully sequestered in a wooden shed near a large steel Quonset hut on the property. Again, from the report to the Minister of Justice and Attorney General Public Fatality Inquiry. Quote, the large equipment door at the east of the Quonset was closed and entry was made through the unlocked man door beside the larger door. Once inside the dark interior of the Quonset hut, it soon became obvious that a, quote, chop shop and a cannabis marijuana grow were in operation. A significant amount of apparently stolen property, motor vehicles, a quad, a power generation system, and numerous parts, as well as the grow-up and associated equipment, were present in the Quonset. It was apparent to the RCMP that they would require a search warrant in order to proceed further with criminal investigation and ultimately to the laying of criminal charges. The parties vacated the Quonset after a cursory 10-minute search, end quote. As it was too late in the day, the search warrant would have to wait until the next morning. Roscoe, however, suspected the cops were coming, and he began to plan what would become his final showdown with them. In our next episode, we'll hear about Roscoe's cowardly ambush of the four RCMP members, his own death, and the aftermath of the crime, including convictions for the men who assisted him, Sean Hennessy and Dennis Cheeseman. And that's it for Dark Poutine, episode 241, Fallen 4, The Mayor Thorpe Tragedy, part 1, Offender History. It's like there's this train. Yeah. This guy is a train that is coming for the police. Yeah. He's coming to a point where things aren't going to go well for everybody. He needed to get slapped down a lot sooner. Yeah. Yeah. Like there were so many opportunities to deal with him. It, it just almost every single time he completely walked scot-free or got a slap on the wrist. It's really hard to, to watch. Like, I mean, obviously we're doing it from a point of hindsight. Yeah. And we see what's coming. You know, he's been charged how many times? Like 36 times and 12 convictions. And, you know, how frustrating was that to maybe police and the Crown Council and all that kind of stuff? Like, this guy just keeps getting off. Yeah. Did they just throw up their hands at some point? Yeah. I mean, I guess a small town, did people just go, oh, you know, there's nothing we can do. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, this this episode is um, kind of timely. Yeah. With the two police in, in, in Innisfil, Ontario, that were recently killed. Yes, and the one that uh, was killed here in Burnaby just this past week. Yeah. But I, we'll get into that a little bit more in episode two. two part two. Okay. I was thinking more about Roscoe, you know, what options did the Crown have? And one of them in the prosecution report that I read right. was that of dangerous offender consideration. Right. The problem with dangerous offender considerations is that the people have to be convicted of things before right. a dangerous offender consideration and is. And he, he rarely got convicted. Mm-hmm. So, after his first conviction on the sexual assault, Roscoe was flagged as a potential dangerous offender. So he was already flagged as a potential dangerous offender when he went on to do the things that he did. He was also identified as a dangerous offender on the basis that his sexual assault conviction was of a nature that it fit within the criteria for flagging. However, Actually proceeding on a dangerous offender application against Roscoe was never a possibility. The only time that an application could have been launched was at the time of his sexual assault conviction. At the time, there was no history of 
proven criminal conduct that would amount to successful application. The viewers can't, the, the listeners, I said viewers, the listeners can't see me just shaking my head right no, here. No, because it's, it's a podcast. Just, but I'm just shaking my head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like, okay, so. But, but I get it, right? Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Um, otherwise, we'd just be chucking people in willy-nilly, Yeah, right? exactly. But this, the circumstances in this one, just he just managed to slip through it each time. Yep. Well, let's, let's move on to voicemail <laughs> because, holy crap. Because we're just going to get upset. Yep, I'm already <laughs> upset. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All right, here is our first voicemail. I'm looking forward to listening to what our listeners have to say this week. Hey, Mike and Matt. Been listening to you guys for a little while now and uh, love everything you guys do, but episode 10 has kind of stuck with me. I got to say, it uh, dredged up some stuff from my past that I never really dealt with. I've never talked about it with anyone. You guys are the first people to hear about this. When I was five or six, uh, some things happened to me at the hands of a babysitter and never really known how to deal with it. But listening to you, Mike, put everything out there has really helped me kind of come to terms with things. I really appreciate everything you guys are doing. And Mike, I really appreciate you putting yourself out there and it makes me feel like I'm not alone knowing that I'm not the only one that's gone through this. Kind of helps me understand myself a little bit better because I buried that in my past and I, I didn't think about it for 20 some odd years until I listened to episode 10. Uh, I'm not in my, uh, my, my vehicle today, so there's no sirens to be played at the end of the call, but Go take a, a, a shit in your hat and uh, have a good rest of your day, fellas. I appreciate everything you're doing. Wow. Holy crow. Uh, I feel uh, a whole bunch of things. Mm. I, feel I feel sad and I feel grateful. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. But... Um... Wow. Thanks for calling. Uh, yeah. Because that, uh, no, that, that, that gave us, that both hit us here sitting here listening to that. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't even know how to respond except thank you for your, your voicemail and for the courage to talk to us about it and to, to, yeah, we really appreciate that. And, and I hope that maybe you reach out and get some help to talk about it with somebody else because I know talking about it has really helped me. So please, please do that. Whew. Wow. I got a little bit teary. <laughs> yeah. I'm such a pussy, Mike. <laughs> no, you're not. You're a human being. I actually have feelings. Yeah. Well, let's, let's move on to our second voicemail. <laughs> Hopefully this one doesn't make us cry. Good evening, you two fine gentlemen, all the way from Slave Lake, Alberta. Um, I just wanted to phone and let you guys know that you're doing a great job with all your uh, episodes. Really informative, the last one, about the internment camps. That was really interesting, especially uh, how many there were 
around Canada and in BC. Um, I do have maybe one uh, possible episode for you, Mike. Um, there was a, it happened back in 1986 up here when the fires went through the town. Uh, there was a young boy about six years old that was playing outside and he ended up disappearing during the fire. Their parents never found the boy again and he has been lost since that day. Um, I can't remember the boy's name now. It um, escapes me, but um, I know his mom has since moved away from the area, but she still is looking for him. Um, it was in the papers, so it shouldn't be too hard to uh, find, but I thought maybe that might be an episode that might bring it to attention. Uh, maybe somebody will remember him. Uh, but other than that, yeah, you guys are doing a great job. Keep it up. Um, very educational, informative, as well as a little lighthearted humor thrown in there with some of these uh, tragedies that happen across Canada. But I thought um, that i give you a shout again, a long-time listener, and uh, Chris is my name. I forgot to throw that in there, but go take a shit in your hat. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Well, thank you for calling from Slave Lake. And, and, and of course, it was another sad one, another like a little boy going missing. I just am thinking, oh, those, that poor mom. I kind of, I, I was ready to make up a name for him because because he didn't say it, but he chucked it in at the end. Yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, yeah that's, that, that's a good story. There are a have you, lot. Have you heard of that, that one before? No, I haven't heard of that one before. But there are a lot of different um Stories like that across Canada where somebody goes missing and they're never seen or heard from again. Uh, we covered a couple of them, but there's so little information. It's hard to do a full episode about one story. Uh, it, there's so little out there. It's when, like when people just go missing. When they just go missing. There's this, there's what that, it's, that's the point. They've just gone missing. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's so. I wish we could do more. I've been thinking about a way to do it. And I think in my mind, we would have to do one episode with multiple stories. So mm. we would do as much as we can on each episode or on each story and uh, have all the information, all the contact information in the show that notes. That could be a useful show actually. Yeah. So maybe we'll start to do more of those. Uh, we got a compliment from somebody calling us ethical true crime the other day, which is kind of nice. Uh, okay. That we don't glorify the the criminal. Right. In ways we don't dramatize, we don't, you know, play it up. I mean, I think as a writer, I've grown over the past five, five years. Has it been five it's years? It's been five you? years. Wow. Yeah in a way that I, what I understand about true crime today is a lot different than I understood when the show first started. And I'm sure people can hear our growth as a show uh, throughout listening. So if you go back and listen to earlier shows, th maybe the, the feel of it will be a little different than it has now become. But that's because uh, I think spiritually and emotionally, mentally, uh, I'm growing around true crime and what what this actually means, what what we're actually doing here. What should we be doing with this type right. of storytelling? Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, 
that was a long tangent. No, <laughs> well, it's, you know, even for me, Mike, I, um, and I've said this before, when you start, the first time I noticed it was when I wrote an episode mm -hmm. because you realize these are humans. And then yeah. when we're doing a show recommended by somebody like Colin and who's Colin and his mom, and it was you know, her mother and his grandmother and, mm -hmm. and, and you, you realize you're, you're trying to do well by these people. You're yeah. trying to help, mm -hmm. right. And tell the story. Yeah. Whew. Well, that's it for vo God, voicemails. We need some funny ones next week, guys. Yeah. <laughs> call in with something. Please call in with something funny. But if you have something serious, that's okay. Yeah. As well. Obviously. True. Your yeah. any any voicemail is really welcome, unless you're going to be a critical bumhole. But those yeah. just don't get played. Yeah, those those the don't get played. The power of the button. Yeah, and and yeah, we. It's amazing. There's this thing called the delete bin you that they go into. You don't get very many at all, though. Which is no, nice. we don't. No. no, there's been one or two. Yeah, but but yeah, and we laugh and laugh, and then we delete. Yeah, we delete, <laughs> and, and you don't get that, get played because. It's not a democracy. It's a benign dictatorship. <laughs> Calling yourself benign. Benign. <laughs> I am pretty benign. <laughs> I don't think I'm malignant. You're malignant. I'm not. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. We'd love to hear from you even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. We have two patrons this week. Oh, great. Two. And uh, neither of them have a place to live that I'm aware of, so that would mean that Matthew is going to put on his investigation hat and, and let me know. I think it's because you're psychic that you come up with these. Because I'm sidekick? You're... Your side, your sidekick, and your psychic. I'm both. I'm the psychic sidekick. <laughs> there you go. I'm kind of the sidekick in supernatural circumstances. Yeah, I, I kind of like. I like that job. Yeah, it's easier. I don't have all the responsibility. Yeah, but I have all the fun. Yeah, I do that on on Alan Warren's show too. I'm just the sidekick and chime in every now and again. Uh, yeah, it is. It isn't a bad gig. It really isn't. All right. So first up. As far as patrons go, we have Danielle La Victoire Perot, and uh, also known as Dan Victory. And I don't know where Dan Victory or Danielle La Victoire Perot lives. I actually do. Okay. But um, I'm going to make up a fake one. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, do you know this person? Yes, she's from she's from Monaco. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yes. She's from Monaco. Yep. Wow. And what does she do in Monaco besides uh, do Princess Grace's hair? She is actually, well, doing Princess Grace's hair right now probably wouldn't be a fun job. Well, she probably does it. You know, somebody has to go into the crypt and make sure that everything. <laughs> oh, God, I'm a, that was, that's ooh, that, dark. That, that got dark fast. She's actually a professional Assassin's Creed player. Really? Yeah, she's like top level. Yeah. She makes all of her money just from, from doing that. I've never been that good at a video game. Like, I've played a lot of yeah. video games. I have spent literal years of my life 
no, playing video games. Dan Victory is the victor when it comes to Assassin's Creed. Well, there you go. Yeah. I guess I should play some Assassin's Creed and get my arse handed to me by Dan Victory. If Absolutely. there's multiplayer, I don't know if there even is. In that game. I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I've only ever played SimCity. There you go. <laughs> I like Sim SimCity is a lot, uh, but the the most recent update really sucked, and it kind of they lost me there. Well, I, I like I, the Sims too. I, I had a word with somebody who works for EA Games. Oh, did you? I had them over for Thanksgiving. Yeah, and said. What's on with SimCity? Yeah. And it's all, it's all about money, right? And I'm like, but I want to be able to create neighborhoods of specific architectural styles to the point where I can put flower boxes on specific windows. Right. So we agreed, even if I won like one of the big American lotteries, he still wouldn't do it for me. Still would not do no. it. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. Um, Next, we have Leanne Owen. Now, I don't know where Leanne is from, but I'm sure you do. Leanne? Mm-hmm. Leanne is, is from Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland. Oh, yeah. well, there you go. And she's from, some people call it Derry. Some people call it London Derry, but I'll, okay. I'll, just, I'll just call it Derry. She's a Derry girl. She's a Derry girl. Yeah. So, like, uh, I've, seen the I've seen the show Derry Girls, yeah. which I quite like. It's really, really funny. It's a fantastic show. But also when I think of Derry, I think of Stephen King and It, because that's uh, where Stephen King's story, It, took place as well. So, is But it, not not. Is it in Derry? It's in Derry, which is uh, one of Stephen King's uh, mythical towns in Maine. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, I couldn't remember it being in Derry. No, it's not. So she's in... Dairy or London Dairy. She's a dairy girl. Yeah. And what does she do being a dairy girl in Dairy? She actually works over in a town nearby. You're going to laugh, but this is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. There's a town called Letterkenny. Oh, really? Yes, not far from Dairy. Letterkenny is it, close to Dairy. It, close to Dairy, and she's a fishmonger there. So, do you like the show Letterkenny? Have you watched it? I love. Letterkenny. See, I think Letterkenny is more geared toward people from rural Ontario. Did you, did I ever show you my birthday party invitation to the actors did like a video for me? Really? Yeah. Like a soft, did you have a soft birthday no, party? No, just a friend knew them and got them to do it. Oh, I didn't see Oh that. yeah, no, I had a super soft birthday party and, and they did the, hey Matthew, in character as well. Really? Yeah, I love Letter Kenny. Too bad you don't have that here. That we other people play like that. the one that you guys like. Trailer Park Boys. Trailer Park Boys is a poor man's Letter Kenny. There, I said it. But, we're we're going to have lots of people calling in about this. But I, I love well Trailer Letter Kenny. Okay, Letter Kenny would not exist without Trailer Park Boys. There, I said that. Not true. I think it is true. Anyway, we're <laughs> moving on. And because, again, it's a benign dictatorship, there shall be no argument. But thank you, both of you. <laughs> thank you, both. Uh, the, the Assassin's Creed champion and the, the fishmonger. Yes. Um, and that's, that's a very noble profession, by the way, just so you know. Is, right? is, fishmonger, is, fish, monger. is, is fishmonger like fishwife? No, somebody who sells, sells fish. You know what a fish 
You've heard the term fishwife yes. as a derogatory thing. No, this is like she has a proper shop. Oh, okay. Because yeah. fishwife is like somebody who's screamy and. No, she's not at all. Sort of. She owns this really. Crass. She has a really posh shop in Letterkenny. That's nice. Yep. yep. Letterkenny. And I do like the show. <coughs> okay. <laughs> Woo. Thank you to our patrons. Thank you both. We don't have any donut money this week so uh i'm on a diet anyway well i'm always on a diet i I think if if you want to call in and say you you didn't like fishmonger i'll change it next week okay are you always on a diet well i'm always kind of not it's not a diet it's like a way of life that i am trying not to be a pig anymore so i've i've lost 50 pounds and kept it off right and i'm still slowly losing weight not at the rapidity that i would like that's usually the way it happened yeah so i've sort of peaked after 50 pounds which was a lot that's a lot of weight to lose so i'm not saying that it's a bad thing but i still have a lot more to go Uh, but this just this past week i thought what's missing as far as what i'm doing and i i realized i wasn't eating a lot of vegetables or fruit so i just started to add those things and exercise and exercise. You got to move. I'm doing all of that. So fruit, move. vegetables, exercise, drink more water, pretty much. Do you wear um, leg warmers on you <laughs> and have little, little pink dumbbells? I should. And like do like the, the fast Like walking. a leotard. I should and have. And the fast walking with your mom going. I should have like a little leotard that I wear. I would look like a. I don't, I don't want to be mean to myself. I was going to say I would look like a big bag of cottage cheese walking down the road, but... But cottage cheese moving in the right direction. <laughs> Help. <laughs> Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. All right. So... (laughs) We just had a really interesting discussion about dates that wasn't in completely incorrect. Actually, we were both right. We were just thinking in different ways. I was thinking of <laughs> calendar week, and you were thinking week of episode. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so next week we'll be back, and it will be, I guess, our fifth anniversary episode, and that will be the Mayorthorpe Tragedy Part 2. Yeah, so Interesting. Five years. Can't believe I've been doing this for five years. Maybe we'll do something a little oh, special in lit- November. It's literally your five-year anniversary. Literally, yes. On yeah, Halloween. Five wow. years uh, Halloween. Yeah. Incredible. Yep. And then uh, the week after that will be uh, the Remembrance Day episode, because okay. that will be released on November 7th. Okay. Yeah. 
So we are doing something special for Remembrance Day this this year, but Are you going to stay over on Christmas? Am I supposed to? Yeah. Why? You can come stay over on Christmas Eve. And... But I have cats. Okay. I yeah. could just come over in the morning then. Well, yeah, I might have. I wanted to like sneak out and put stuff in the stocking and see you wake up and like unwrap gifts. Well, <laughs> well you can have gifts for me to unwrap when I'm there. Okay. All right. Anyway. <laughs> can I put you in like a little pajamas and I, then like you have to come out and pretend you just woke up? A little onesie with the, <laughs> with the bum out? No, thank you, Mike. With the bum out? No, thanks. No, you don't want the... No. Okay, good. Maybe if you're somebody else. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> oh, ow. My heart. Anyway, that's it for this week. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, everybody. Bye. Showcase. They call me the Christchurch Carver. Based on the international bestseller. This trademark souvenir. Can't stop thinking about the apple. Usually he eats it. I've got a copy can on my hands. I know who you are, Joe. I know what you do. You have two days to find a copycat. This is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it. Dark City, The Cleaner. All new Wednesdays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.